podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we'll be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing, You Were Always Someone Else, wherein we will talk about using Beetlejuice as an inspiration for our games. Join us on the path of suns and you may uncover a secret or two. When we cast You Were Always Someone Else, we discuss inspirations from other media for our games of Invisible Sun. This time we're going to talk about the Tim Burton classic, Beetlejuice. Um, yeah, so, hey, it's Beetlejuice. Uh, you've seen this before, right, Scott? Oh, I've I've seen this many, many times. Did you know that there's a big old F-bomb in this movie? I had forgotten that, but I noticed it when I rewatched it. Yeah, I had forgotten that too until I rewatched it with my children, <laughs> like back <laughs> in October. <laughs> I, I just don't know if I just didn't notice it before or had forgotten, but yeah, it, it was noticeable in the movie. Oh, it's so noticeable. It's such a good joke. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, Beetlejuice is great. I love this movie. It's a ton of fun. Uh, real quick background on where you can watch this. Uh, I don't believe it is available like on Netflix or anything. Uh, any of the free ser- like any of these subscription services, I don't think it's included anywhere right now. Uh, I could you can rent it for you know four bucks or so from Amazon or uh, what Vudu and uh, what are the other things that you can rent things from? I don't pay attention to that stuff that much. Um, I got it off of Amazon. I think it's off of Google Play. Uh, there's a couple of options. It's also airing. It airs occasionally on cable. Uh, yeah. So I noticed that if I wanted to wait until the end of the month, there uh, it was airing on some channel that I could have just recorded it off of. Uh, so if you're, if you're patient, you have lots, you have lots of options. If you're impatient, you've got options for streaming. Yeah. The way I watched it is, uh, I dug out the old VCR and found the slipcase for Beetlejuice and watched it in a four by three aspect ratio. And it was ugh, awful. Yeah. <laughs> I, rent, I rented it. Um, so, uh, yeah, let, let's, let's quickly go over. All right. If you haven't seen Beetlejuice, watch Beetlejuice. It's great. It's uh, Tim Burton pretty much at the height of, you know, his his movie making career. I don't know. Would it be his height? I don't know. What would his height I be? I think this was sort of his his entrance into his big career. Yeah, I guess this was probably before Edward Scissorhands, wasn't it? It's right around the same time, but I can check. Yeah, I think this might be before that because I know Winona Ryder didn't initially sign up for Beetlejuice. Like the only person who did was, oh no, now I'm going to have to look it up because maybe I was wrong. Maybe she signed up right away and then everybody else started signing up after they had rejected it. Ah, so whatever. Edward Scissorhands was 1990 and Beetlejuice was 89 to 90. Uh, through, oh, that's the TV series. Um, so Beetlejuice was definitely earlier. Beetlejuice, um, still, still trying to confirm. So he'd already done Pee Wee's Big Adventure, and oh. that was <laughs> that was very popular. Beetlejuice was eighty eight. Batman was eighty nine. Edward Scissorhands was ninety. Uh, 
So this Beetlejuice predates his Batman run, Scissorhands, Ed Wood, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow, and then other movies. <laughs> okay, so I would say, yeah, this is right in the like peak of his movie-making career um, because, yeah, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, uh, like, can you get a better debut than Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Like, I don't think so. <laughs> and that was his first full-length feature film. Yeah, Pee-wee, then Beetlejuice, uh, such a good follow-up. And then Batman, the original Batman, come on. Yes. Uh, Edward Scissorhands, uh, also fantastic. Batman Returns, underrated. Ed Wood, uh, also incredible. And then, yeah, okay, then I'm good. I, I really like Mars Attacks. Uh, oh, and Sleepy Mars Hollow, Attacks for that matter. Yeah. Uh, and then skipping some. I liked Big Fish and Corpse Bride. Big Fish is really good. Yeah, it's become less consistent after that point but we're yeah. not really talking uh, though it's it's worthwhile mentioning some of these movies because a lot of these can be mined for surreal inspiration because he's a surrealist director yeah I, I was gonna say his aesthetic is something you can definitely see come through in all of his movies and you should take notes because he does some really great stuff and a lot of it a lot of that is on feature in beetlejuice so yeah go ahead and that's one thing I hadn't appreciated was I knew there was a cartoon based on Beetlejuice, which I enjoyed mm -hmm. when it was coming out in 1989 and 90. It ran for 94 episodes. Oh, yeah. Back then, okay, this is something I realized when I was looking at, you know, the seasons of like the Gummy Bears and DuckTales. Cartoons had like 50 episodes in a season back then, mm -hmm. which is bizarre. I, wow, I did not know that. <laughs> but there's a lot of material here related to Tim Burton, related to Beetlejuice that you can mine. But we'll talk specifically about the movie Beetlejuice. Yeah. So Beetlejuice is this movie about a recently deceased couple who seeks the aid of a malicious spirit to help them remove a rude family from their home. Uh, that about sums it up, right? Yeah, that's pretty comprehensive. Yeah. All right. I got the I got the one liner. <laughs> yes, that's that's the hook for the movie that doesn't give away anything. Um, but it's yeah, it's about kind of a reverse exorcism. It's the dead trying to exorcise the living from the house, which is one of the surreal aspects of it. It reverses the usual exorcism mm -hmm. uh, storyline. Uh, it, oh, it stars some incredibly talented people. Uh, uh, everybody's that, good. Yeah, that you will recognize. Uh, and just overall is, is well remembered. Um, I, I actually don't know anyone who doesn't like Beetlejuice. Some people like it more than others, but pretty much everyone's been entertained by it. Uh, yeah, I would say I like it quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> Pee Wee's Big Adventure, I think, might be my, be, it might be my favorite Burton movie. Beetlejuice is way up there. Uh, Edward Scissorhands, I'm a big fan of. I mean, let's talk about Tim Burton movies again, I guess. Um, <laughs> anyway. What, well, why don't we talk about what we can learn from this movie? And before we do that, um, sorry, we didn't put up a spoiler warning, but we're going to spoil Beetlejuice, this movie that came out, uh, you know, back in the 80s. 20 years ago. 30 years ago. I was going to say, it's been more than 20. Yeah, 30 years ago, almost uh, exactly. How does yeah. it make you feel, Scott? Uh, I can pretend that uh, because I said I was enjoying the cartoon, I must have been really, really young. Uh, that's not true. I just liked cartoons and continue to, but still. I, I remember enjoying the cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> I was still young enough that it wasn't weird. Yeah, we, um, oh yeah, I, it was a little weird for me probably. Um, 
we've mentioned this movie before uh, because we had a, an episode titled uh, Handbook for the Recently Deceased, which is inspired by this movie. Yeah. And we talked about how this movie might be good as inspiration for uh, bureaucracy in The Pale Sun. So it's kind of the role it's serving here as inspiration for The Pale Sun. But there's lots of stuff you could draw from this. Well, why don't we start with, um, you know, the bureaucracy aspect? Because it, it came up when we were talking about The Pale Sun again recently. Um, and I... I don't know. I remember the handbook for the recently deceased and the waiting room and all that stuff as a much more significant portion of the movie than it actually is. And I'm not sure just how much you would want to pull from there. Well, I think there's some ideas that you can pull from, but you would need to elaborate on them. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite lines for inspiration is is when uh, the Alec Baldwin character is reading through the, re- the the handbook and saying, this reads like motorcycle assembly instructions. Yep, that was a good one. And I was like, wait, that's a really good idea. What if you had a prop you gave to your players and you wrote it modeled after some sort of like Ikea uh, assembly instructions or something else where it's just as boring as you possibly can be, even though it's about this incredibly important uh, spiritual, actually, subject. Uh, and I was like, that that you could actually draw inspiration from for this movie. Yeah, and that 100% reinforces everything you had talked about with the Pale Sun and the bureaucracy that you would find there. Mm-hmm. Like you you want to create this document that has no emotion, no agenda. It just needs to give you information about the process that you're going through and the steps that you need to take in order to get through it. Right. And everyone within the system is absolutely convinced that you should be able to read it. It should be very simple. Just you're just being lazy. If you have not read through this book. Yeah. Um, And then there's, it's also played a little bit when the Winona writer character Seemingly picks up the book and understands it just fine. Oh, she's she's got an interesting character. Yes. Yes. So there are people who do read through this manual just fine, uh, but it seems to be impenetrable for our two main protagonists. And again, you could use that in a game um, where you either use it as a model for a prop or you could actually say something like there's a difficulty to understand this book because it is such it has such Byzantine structure and language. Yeah, and it somehow just manages to put you to sleep whenever you try and focus on it. <laughs> that would be a way to implement it, yes. Um, it's also interesting that, you know, the the wait times that they have are, you know, in the millions for, you know, which ticket you get. Um, perhaps the the manner in which that handbook was written is just feeding into that, you know, issue. Yes. So one of the you know, one thing that'd be easy to borrow is that you have an old school system for ticketing where when you go to the office to ask for your was it one of three visits you're allowed to have in your first 65 years or something? Uh, uh, it might have been something. 125 years, maybe 125 years, some and large three number Three vouchers, three help vouchers. Yes. Uh, but even with the voucher, you have to go take a number and sit in the waiting room. And yes, the numbers are into the millions. And they were they just called up number four. It's a sense of you will be here forever waiting in this waiting room unless you do something uh, is a fun sort of challenge for players in an invisible sun game. Yeah. So Beetlejuice tries to uh, cheat someone out of their ticket. It doesn't go well. Uh, and 
somehow the main protagonists just sort of storm their way in, basically. Yeah, so there's they, different they ways you could. Their, uh, they make their charisma check. Yes, so it, it, it's actually it should be like, here's a generic encounter. Let players solve it however they want to solve it, uh, and then kind of move along. But but you have it there just to, to present opposition and give them give the players a sense that they've accomplished something. Yeah, and sort of flex their muscle and use their abilities in a creative way. And this is something that I run into every once in a while, where I'll present a problem to the table that the players will kind of passively accept and not try and push against. And I, this has come up before, and it's like, how do you how do you tell the players that you want them to just work on finding a solution? rather than waiting for you to tell them what happens. I sometimes tell them that directly and say, yeah. uh, I don't really have a single solution here in mind. I'm open to suggestions. I inspire me, <laughs> inspire each other. And let's just find a way to get through, you know, get, get past this. But I do recommend you try to get past this rather than try to get around it. Yeah. I think in these situations, uh, you know, I'll just sort of throw it out there and say like, all right, you're in this waiting room and your number is 35 million. What do you want to do? And if it looks like my players are just kind of sitting on their hands, I, I, if there is no discussion going on, I will pretty gently nudge them and say something like, you can sit here and wait uh, until your number's called, um, but it's going to be a long time. And I think that usually gets them moving. But if it doesn't, then I will be much more direct and say, I'm giving you guys a problem here. And I'm leaving it to you to come up with some sort of solution. And you might even have someone sit down next to them and show that his, her, her number is number four. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay. You know, what are you going to do about it? Do you bargain for it? Do you persuade? Do you assault? <laughs> whatever, whatever you do, you have it, it makes an opportunity real for them sitting next to them. Yeah. Um, so, uh, what other thing, do you want to talk about other bureaucracy stuff or do we want to talk about one of the other things that we really liked to, we would think one about thing I liked as a visual mm -hmm. for the bureaucracy was that they had several social workers that had been, had died and like been run over by cars or trucks or whatever. And they were basically flattened or broken badly, Yep. but that didn't stop them from being social workers. They literally like hooked them up to a tram system in the ceiling and they just were dragged from place to place, delivering mail and delivering paperwork while they're flattened. That's, that's one thing I was thinking about as I was watching it. And I said to myself, would I want to use the method that they were killed and arrived in the pail as some sort of, uh, would I want to use that? Or do you just show up in the pail as your spirit? Within the game, I would say probably just show up as your spirit, unless you had some conditions that might be exceptions that you could use for this purpose. Mm -hmm. You could also have, uh, you, you could also introduce the notion that maybe people show up as a spirit, but to some, some of people find that their spirit as reflective of their death is how they're trying to come to terms with their death. And so it's not that they're sentenced to be flat. It's that they've chosen to be flat because they believe this will help them sort of come to terms with their place. Yeah, that, that would be a good take on it. 
Yeah, so there, there's ways you could do this. I, for me, it was just the fun visual of these oh, yeah. flat people being uh, being zoomed around the building um, on a tram system as a delivery mechanism for paperwork. Uh, did you also like that uh, the paperwork was put in the file pile? Uh, yes. I mean, it, it, that just struck me as normal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you want to do you want to talk about houses? I think this would be a great movie to use to discuss houses. So uh, as I was watching this, I realized the house in this movie is it's a Vizlay's house. Like it, it's got all the trappings that you would have in a Vizlay house. It's got um, it's got a secret room in the attic uh, that ghosts live in. Um, it's got a miniature neighborhood that has well, in the movie, it has one person living in it, uh, but it's got a miniature neighborhood in the house that you could have occupied by all sorts of people. Like there's all sorts of stuff in in the house that I think would make for great inspiration for a Visley's house. Yeah, you could use the, the model neighborhood in the attic as some form of sympathetic magic where you could mm-hmm. actually mo- uh, manipulate the neighborhood by manipulating the model. Yeah, it's super cool. I love it. Um Oh, the geography. So uh, when you leave the house, the geography that's outside isn't what you would expect. In the movie, it's, you know, the desert where the Sandburns live. Um, But if this is a Visley's house, it could just be when you open a door that takes you outside, it might take you to a random location in, you know, in the actuality or in Fartown or whatever. Um, Or it could just, you know, take you somewhere totally unexpected. Or maybe you have as the owner of the house, you might have some sort of control over where the exits are going to lead to, which would be a, a boon for a Visley, I would think. Yeah. A, a way to approximate what they're experiencing in the movie might be that you have a house that if you leave, you have to perform a certain ritual or you are automatically dumped out into an expanse inside the pale. Yeah. Whether it's a specific door or all of the doors. Um, it could be that you have to perform this ritual, which means it's easy to break into your house. It's really hard to get out of it unless you teach people this ritual. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, come on in. Take all my stuff. Uh, but when you leave, you're going to get stuck somewhere really inconvenient. <laughs> right. And we'll come collect that later. Uh, time is also something that functions differently within the house. Um, so... It's it functions differently for the dead people in the house uh, when they when they leave. Uh, I don't know what's the best way to put it. So when when the ghosts leave the house, then they experience time at a different rate than everyone else. And then when they come back, time starts going normally for them. So you know they might leave the house in the morning for just a couple of minutes. And then when they return, it's the evening. Yeah. The, the plot of the movie is at the speed of the protagonists, but the plot for the living people seems to be at the, whatever the convenient speed is for that plot. So the protagonists yeah. might leave for a day or so to go to their, uh, their, their session with their social worker. And they come back after what seems to them have been a few hours. And apparently it's been months and their house has been sold already. And then they leave again. They come back. Oh, the house has been entirely redecorated. And so, yeah, it, it is. It, time pr- proceeds conveniently, much in the same way it does for an RPG session where often we'll say, okay, well, it's, it might take us a long time to get through the one particular encounter. But then we'll skip ahead a week to let other stuff resolve. 
And so our, our, the Invisible Sun has a lot of mechanisms to allow you to have these sort of alternate uh, speeds of time. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how you'd want to pull this for Visley's house, but uh, you know, there's something there that you could probably work into an interesting idea. Yeah, and and certainly you could play with that with like spirit NPC characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not all of them. Maybe it's not an inherent characteristic of being a spirit, but for some of them, they experience time differently, more slowly or more quickly, and just work that into the interactions with those NPCs. For some people, the war was yesterday, even though we still don't talk about it. No, we don't. And talk for about some it. people, um, you know, it's been what seems to them to have been lifetimes since the war. Uh, the other thing I really liked about the house was after Delia, Dietz, and Otho redecorate the place, uh, they turn it into this weird sort of perverted art deco space. And this is where you can really see a lot of Tim Burton's, <clears throat> uh, his aesthetic really shine mm-hmm. through. Uh, the weird abstract uh, sculptures that they've put throughout the house and you know the color selection and all that stuff. Um, and... The, the art is really great because you eventually get another scene where the art comes to life. And, hey, having a Visley's house with furniture and art that is, uh, I guess, locomotive would be, you know, that would be another good thing to drop into a house. Absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, you, you, the, the maximum surreal component is what would be the baseline for Invisible Sun. Yeah. Um, so last thing, we should probably talk about ghosts. Yeah. Ghosts in general. Um, you know, I, I was watching this movie and I said, once again, it looks like, you know, Monty Cook kind of borrowed heavily from this movie, uh, some of the rules for how ghosts are going to function in invisible sun. Um, I don't know. I guess I was thinking that when I started watching the movie and, I mean, no, it, it, I guess it's kind of a joke that I say that he was inspired by this, but you know, he, he, it was probably something that was there that helped inspire how the invisible sun Mm -hmm. stuff works. Um, the other joke movie I like to refer to is ghost, um, because Patrick Swayze's character goes through all the steps of the invisible sun ghost evolution, uh, through the course of that movie. (laughs) Yeah. And I would add frighteners. Oh, Frighteners is another good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you can see like, you know, an implementation of this general idea of how ghosts function uh, and all of these different movies and books and Invisible Sun itself have this different take on how ghosts function in the world. And it's all kind of similar. Um, you know, the uh, what's their name? The Maitlands. They, they get back to the house and they're basically the first level of a ghost in Invisible Sun. Like nobody can see them. Uh, I guess they can interact with things. But the big thing is like they've found the place that they didn't find the place they died, but they found the, the thing that they, you know, wanted to get back to. And, you know, they sort of evolve as ghosts there. Uh, and then as the movie progresses, like you see, you know, Beetlejuice has, you know, a bit more power in the world. He can possess things. He can possess. Does he possess people in this movie? I think uh, to some extent. Yeah, to some extent. I guess during the dinner party. Yeah. Um, but you know, these are things that uh, you know 
can occur as you know with ghosts in invisible sun i don't know there's not a whole lot there other than like they're, they're all doing the same sort of thing when it comes to ghosts or the, uh, there seems to be a scale and the more advanced you are, the more you can do, which yes. is consistent with the invisible sun rules. Um, I was amused at the beginning. Uh, it said that you could only, that only people who wanted to see the ghosts could see the ghosts. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And that was a call out from the book, uh, handbook for the recently deceased. Um, you, people generally won't see ghosts. Uh, rather than they can't see ghosts. And uh, Lydia Dietz can see ghosts, which, you know, that could be a, a secret that she has access to if we were talking about an NPC in Invisible Sun. Right. Um, so that's a lot about Beetlejuice. Uh, do we <laughs> have anything else we want to talk about before we wrap it up? Uh, no, I think there's a lot of ins- a lot to draw from here. Um, of course, it's not everything. It doesn't directly replicate the model of ghosts in the game. Uh, but more than anything, it's just inspiration for how to play with ghosts in a surreal, in this case, almost comical, not more, not almost, directly comical way. Yeah. Uh, and hey, it was an excuse to watch Beetlejuice. Uh, fun trivia, though. Uh, I, I had to. I, I'd, I'd forgotten also that within the movie. Beetlejuice is spelled like the star. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I, but I if you search, that. if you search for the movie, it's spelled with beetle as in the insect and juice as in orange juice. And uh, so I was like, well, wait a second. Why is it spelled differently? Like, inside the movie, it is entirely consistent that it's the, the astronomical spelling of Beetlejuice, not the more mundane spelling. So I did a little bit of research on this to find out that apparently the entire movie was shot with the notion that Beetlejuice was spelled like the star. Uh-huh. But Tim Burton realized no one would know how to spell the movie's title. No. <laughs> so he used the Beetle and Juice combination, Beetlejuice, uh, that spelling just for advertising purposes. Uh, that also does show up in the movie. It, they, they joke about it, but like in terms of his actual name, it is usually yes. the or it's the astronomical version. I mean, it's yeah. one way that commu- they communicate his name without saying it. Yes, and because phonetically, it's a lot easier to to communicate. Uh, but it was not intended initially to be the spelling for the title. That mm-hmm. just came around later when he realized he wanted people to actually see his movie. So Tim Burton was aware, aware of SEO before the internet. <laughs> Something like that. Great. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, It really helps us out. Uh, We also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. 
uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha help people find us.